We talk a lot on this podcast about chess improvement, but when it comes to improving your hiring processes, Indeed is the platform you need. Indeed has over 350 million global monthly visitors, and it has a matching engine that helps you find quality work candidates fast. You can use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with your candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree that Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. Years ago, when I was running a chess teaching business, I found it hard to find good help, and I had to go through a lot of back and forth to even screen potential candidates. Indeed allows you to do those things efficiently in one place. Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed for hiring, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of Perpetual Chess will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility if you go to Indeed.com slash chess. Just go to Indeed.com slash chess right now, and you'll be supporting our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast, Indeed.com slash chess. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver? I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, everyone. I'm Ben Johnson, and this is the Perpetual Chess Podcast. On Perpetual Chess, I have weekly conversations with the chess world's best players, promoters, and educators about their lives, careers, current projects, and best practices. For more information, go to perpetualchesspod.com. Hey, everyone. So I'm here coming in from Berlin with freelance writer, fresh off of writing an outstanding profile for the New Yorker on Levon Aronian. Sean Williams, how are you? Good, thanks. Good to speak to you, man. Uh, so this is a little bit, Sean obviously is a little bit of a different guest, but us uh, chess aficionados like myself and the listeners, we love to see chess portrayed uh, you know, positively in the mainstream media, especially in illustrious publication like the New Yorker. So Sean, could you tell us a little bit about how this uh, profile on Levanaronian came into existence? Yeah, sure. So I was actually initially looking at kind of the more uh, political side of the chess kind of infrastructure, you know, stuff going on in um, with FIDA and in Kalmykia and, and, and some interesting stuff like that. And I kind of decided to go along to the World Blitz Championships in Berlin. Uh, I think it was in 2015. But while I was there, I kind of, Levon took my eye because he was such a kind of languid looking guy at the board uh and i just kind of love the way that people were really drawn to him as well um i mean i have to admit i didn't really know a huge amount about him at that point but i was kind of uh kind of enthralled by the way he 
carried himself and I was interested to hear more. So yeah, I, I kind of did some research and through that I kind of found, you know, how important he is for his country. And then through that, I kind of discovered all sorts of interesting things about Armenia. So it just, be, just kind of snowballed from there. Yeah, it was one of those sort of classic New Yorker sweet spots where you tell a, a smaller story that sort of encompasses some bigger stories dating back to the Armenian genocide and the, you know, the chess history of Armenia. But you, you had a keen eye for, for someone who fascinates us. So just a couple of weeks ago, we had Hikaru Nakamura, who's also one of the world's top 10 on. And we asked him, uh, I asked him who he thought uh, had the best chance of supplanting Magnus Carlsen. And funny enough, he, he mentioned Levon Aronian and talked about him in sort of the same terms that you did in your, your profile. So whatever it was about him, you, you, were, you noticed something accurate. Uh, so how did you, once you decided that he was an interesting figure, what was your next step, Sean? Um, well, I, I mean, I'd always had kind of a fascination to go out to the Caucasus anyway. So I, I was like, okay, this is my perfect uh, opportunity to kind of make that, uh, you know, a, a real trip. So I, I headed out to Yerevan um, last last summer. It was and, and kind of spent uh, spent about two and a half weeks in the region um, and just met a load of people within the kind of chess. Uh, system there, kind of young people playing it in bars, even, you know, going to the kind of chess federation and meeting a load of people there and going to a couple of tournaments. So I kind of got into the, into the chess scene in Armenia that way. Uh, and while I was there, I met Levon, um, at a hotel in kind of downtown Yerevan. And it kind of some, even meeting him there kind of summed up a lot of things about the country and chess because we kind of met in this, uh, big cavernous sort of fancy hotel. Uh, that's kind of a, an emblem of how the country and the city is kind of getting over a lot of its past problems. So everything was very emblematic about meeting him and doing the story, and it all seemed to click into place there, yeah. Okay, so as a freelance writer, Sean, were you just uh, taking this trip on spec, and or did you already have sort of a gig lined up for where it was going to be published? Actually, so the way that I worked this trip was a bit strange. So I actually did, uh, to kind of get out there in the first place, I did a travel story um, based in Georgia. And so Georgia abuts Armenia. Um, and I was kind of going on a whim that I would sort of see some interesting stuff chess-wise in Armenia. And my, uh, I'd spoken to my editor at The New Yorker that I might kind of find something. But it was a bit, it was kind of half on spec and half for another story that I got out to the region in the first place. So um, it's a bit of a sort of strange way in, but yeah, it, it got me there and it kind of uh, got me ingratiated with the locals and, and allowed me to kind of do some more research firsthand. Excellent. And we'll get back to the story, but what was your entry into chess? What, like, how did you know about the FIDE uh, uh, clusterfuck, for lack of a better word, <laughs> and um, the general background? Yeah, I mean, I played it as a kid. I played chess in school for a bit. Um, I'm useless, completely useless. Uh, and it, it, I don't know. I mean, I, I was looking to do more sporting stories because I seem to have fallen into this pattern with a New Yorker of writing about the kind of uh, nexus between sport, culture and politics, which I really enjoy doing. So I, I had been to Moscow to do another reporting trip, I think, a while before the Berlin tournament. Uh, and I kind of just sort of tested the war and spoke to a few people there. I spoke to Gary Kasparov at one point as well to try and see if I had an angle to write about him related to FIDA. So I, don't, I, I, I mean, I couldn't really tell you exactly how the story came about or how I was 
sort of slowly became more and more obsessed with the the idea of writing about chess, but it was kind of a slow burner for a few years. Uh, and once I, and once I kind of got it into my head that I wanted to write about chess then I was reading all sorts of stuff and going back into the history books and, you know, getting really excited about writing about cold war stuff and all, all kinds of historical aspects of chess. So, um, when I did finally settle on writing about Levon, it was a kind of relief in a way. Yeah, uh, a little bit more contemporary, but you were still able to uh, to weave the history into it. Um, so once you once you got to Armenia, was it your first step? Did you go to a chess club, or what did you do to to start digging into the um, the culture there? Well, I kind of went high and low. So I went to the the chess federation, which is at this kind of crazy wedge shaped building on the outskirts of uh, of Yerevan, um, and then met the local sort of chess federation secretary. And he showed me around a load of stuff and there was a kind of senior tournament going on there that a lot of the local players were attending. So then I, then I kind of met a few of the, the local players there. And then the, I think one of the first nights I ended up wandering into a bar that was called Chess Pub. Uh, and that gave me a, a really interesting insight into how kind of prevalent it is in Armenia because these guys were getting completely screwed up on shots <laughs> and playing kind of speed chess in a bar playing heavy metal rock music. I mean, it was such a shame that it didn't, it kind of got left on the cutting floor of the edit, actually, this scene where people are just playing chess at a million miles an hour. There's chess pieces flying all over the floor. Everyone's getting hammered. Uh, and I think the, the, uh, the blackboard outside the, uh, uh, outside the pub said, um, what was it? It said something, um, life is serious, but chess is more than life or something like this. So it was, it was kind of a really nice insight into how widespread uh, the playing of the sport is there and how kind of passionate people are. That must have been fun. So did you dip your toe into Blitz or mainly uh, spectate? I mainly spectated. Um, I kind of played a few games, had a few shots uh, and kind of got into it there. But um, yeah, I mean, I wasn't a patch on even like the 10 year old kids that were playing in that place. So um yeah, that was also another crazy thing. There's kids all the way up from sort of young kids up to like 70 year old guys playing each other in this bar. So, um, and I wouldn't have a hope at, at taking them, you know, more than 15 minutes, any of them. So I kind of just was happy to sit back and watch and have a beer or two, but it was a great experience. Yeah. Yeah. Well, these days there's 10 year old kids who can beat almost all of us, myself included. So, there, <laughs> so there's no shame in that. Um, I beat myself up. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, so, and then I'm going to kind of go back and forth because I, I want to get to your meeting with uh, Mr. Ronian and uh, getting to interview him a little bit and getting background. But so when you took it to New Yorker, were they just like on board right away or did it take some convincing? Um, I, I met, uh, yeah, I went to New York and I met my editor at New Yorker. And, and to be honest, no, it didn't take a lot of convincing. I think that it had all of the, by the time I'd, I'd kind of, knew enough about the story it did like you said it had this kind of perfect feature element like the kernel of the story and the profile of the guy himself that kind of explodes out into all of this uh history and culture and sport and and stuff that you can really kind of uh diffuse out in the story in a way that's really enjoyable so i think they were they were really into it from the off uh i think it was commissioned within like a day of chatting to them as well so um, that was nice because that process can go on for a while sometimes. Nice. Yeah. And uh, so once you decided to dig in, did you find like uh, the, the jargon of chess? Did you find it um, uh, daunting? 
Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, um, yeah, I thought I knew something about chess, but I realized I knew absolutely uh, nothing uh, <laughs> when I started to research the stuff. Um, but I mean, it's all, it's just a case of like picking up the right books and just uh, putting your head down for a while and, and really kind of concentrating. Actually, incidentally, that's something that I find really interesting about chess that I'm useless at. I haven't got a huge uh, sort of attention span and I find the, the discipline of playing chess at that high level so fascinating because it uses a part of the brain that I don't seem to be able to access ever. Uh, the way that these guys can kind of just hunker down and, and focus on tournaments and, and winning all the time. Uh, I find that really fascinating, but yeah, back to your point. I mean, it's, yeah, it, it just, um, I mean, at the start as well, I just kind of like flung as many emails out and was on the phone as, to as many people as I could just trying to get as many different viewpoints on the game. Um, and it was, yeah, it was, it was really fascinating, really, really cool, interesting topic to research. Nice. Well, hopefully, uh, this won't be your last piece on it. So you mentioned that, that you read some books to sort of get, get acclimated. Do, do you remember any particular books that were helpful in sort of, uh, um, breaking down the barriers of our, our little subculture? Um, hmm. Now that's a good question. Um, I read some of the, the titles by Bobby Fisher cause I found out they were quite interesting uh as a kind of historical look back at some of the big clashes there mm -hmm. um apart from that i mean i read i read a couple of gary kasparov's books as well um but i i tended to delve into i can't remember now there's like dozens of different sort of small obscure books that i read and google books was great for that they've got so many chess books just available online that you can read oh nice um yeah, yeah, but but honestly, as as far as specific titles go, now I can barely remember which ones I was looking at at the time. Okay, and digging into the story, I mean, the lead of the story is awesome. Just like uh, Melixek uh, Kachi, and I hope I'm saying his name right. He's a well-known teacher here in the U.S., but I unfortunately may or may not have the pronunciation down. But uh, you know, him ending up staying with uh, Levanaronian's parents and. Uh, becoming his teacher and Levon sort of exploding within a few years from there. So how did you, um, how did you nail down that bit of background information? I think that I may have got the, I think it was from Levon himself. He was telling me about medic set and, um, and then once I contacted medic set, it was kind of, uh, yeah, that, that part of the story is really, really lovely to begin with. Uh, and it kind of plays into so many different narratives about the country at the time, which is going through two of its kind of biggest disasters, uh, the earthquake and the, and the conflict, which still hasn't died, died down at all. Um, and then it, it, it kind of, uh, it's interesting because it plays into another narrative that unfortunately didn't make the final story, which is that the Armenians themselves are quite concerned that a lot of their coaches are moving abroad to the States, especially, uh, and they're worried that this is creating a bit of a, a kind of brain drain in, in where to teach the next generation of players. Um, because despite being such a, uh, an overachiever in the sport, I mean, it doesn't really have any kind of top, top performers in the, in the mold of Levon still. So I think a few people are quite concerned that, um, people like Melek Set and others are heading abroad to kind of get more money. And that's leaving a bit of a gap in terms of where the next big star is going to come through. That's interesting. And you mentioned in, in the article that, that teachers have historically received state support, but I guess it can't compete with uh, private enterprise here and elsewhere. Yeah, I mean, it's. I think the stipend is something like, even for a grandmaster, I mean, it's just like a little, 
helpful bump of money. I think it's like 120 bucks or maybe 200 bucks or something, but it's not, it's certainly not enough to, yeah, sustain any kind of a professional career, you know, in a huge way. So when the big bucks come, then, uh, I think most of the guys are going to get on the plane. Right. Which, yeah, that, I guess, I mean, I, I see both sides of it. People have to pursue their self-interest, but you know, mm-hmm. the, the outliers in terms of chess history, like, uh, um, like Armenia and Iceland and places like that, we wouldn't want them to lose their uh, their character and their strength. Yeah, and I mean for for Armenia in particular, so much of their so much of their national ambition is wound up in this sport that uh, I think it would be pretty devastating to them if they if they kind of lost that status. Yeah, and you mentioned that their current president has um has a chess background. Yeah, he was president. I think he still is the president of the uh, Armenian Chess Federation. Um, and he played a big role in kind of welcoming Levon back into the fold when he was, uh, he was kind of, um, self-exile in uh, Germany and, and was going to switch allegiances. Um, yeah, he's, he's kind of played a big role in, um, bringing, bringing chess to, to the kind of population and making it a, a compulsory part of school education, which is really unique. Um, Unfortunately, I couldn't speak to him for this story. His, uh, his spokesperson kept kind of fobbing me off, which was annoying because I thought <laughs> he would have provided some really good color for the piece. But I guess, uh, I guess lowly freelance reporter wasn't good enough for the president this time around. So, um, it was a shame, but I, yeah, he has played a huge role in kind of, uh, bringing chess to the fore as a, as a way that Armenia can really help develop its, its youth. Uh, and that's the whole huge part of the story touched on really that's that's fascinating about how chess can help armenia overcome a lot of its kind of economic woes um which i would love to write about again so sean you may not have been able to access the president of armenia but you did get some some great people like you had an amazing quote from anish giri sort of poetic about levon aroni and he said he's probably too emotional referring to to winning the world title and the sight of his dream being close makes his vision blurry so how were you able to to gain access to some to players like Geary and get so much sort of great background? I, um, to be honest, when you kind of flash the New Yorker brand at people, they're a lot more uh, willing to talk to you than maybe when you're speaking on behalf of other publications. Um, but I was also kind of really, really surprised by the candor of the top players. I thought they'd be quite tight-lipped about their opponents, but they're quite ready to kind of... Uh, shit around um and i but not in not in necessarily in a kind of um bad mouthing way but just being very honest Uh, and i found that really refreshing having spent a lot of years speaking to soccer players and other sports stars who are kind of uh really tight lipped and pretty bland sometimes when it comes to quotes so yeah i spoke to anish giri and wesley so uh contributed and i spoke to vishy anand as well and he was great at, at talking about how he thought that, you know, Levon was a wonderful talent and really sort of precocious, but, but it was very, um, mercurial and was probably losing sight of, of, of what was making him great. So yeah, it's, it was really, really interesting to speak to those guys. And obviously they're, they're total stars. So that was quite a privilege in its own right. Yeah, I've noticed that about the top players as well. And I think part of it might be that, the, you know, the media glare, I know you've written about soccer or AKA football of, a fair amount. <laughs> um, and I think the media glare is just a little less bright. And the other thing is just that they know each other so well that, it's, that I think they maybe don't feel like they're telling tales out of school if it's like they see each other basically at every tournament. Um, 
Yeah, I think that's right. And I think that because of the kind of the more intellectual side of the, the game as well, I think that they have a lot more mutual respect for each other than maybe people in other sports have. Um, because they're always on tour together, I guess they're always hanging out. And so, yeah, it makes for, it certainly makes for a better story as a journalist anyway. Yeah, and this tournament, I mean, this this feature took you to, so you spent a lot of time in Armenia. Obviously, you live in Berlin where, where Levan Aronian also uh, lives part of the time. Did you uh, go anywhere else for this story? Uh, I met Levan at uh, London after the event there, just before Christmas. Um, I'm from London originally, so I was actually there to visit my family for Christmas, and it turned out that he was there at the same time. So we met after the tournament uh, at the hotel in uh, kind of central London, and he was pretty despondent at that time. Um, and it seemed to kind of bookend what had been a pretty dreadful year for him. And I think he took to Twitter, uh, Twitter or Facebook after that to apologize to a lot of his fans and, and assure them that he was going to come back this year. Um, so that, so yeah, Yerevan, London, and, and uh, speaking to him on the phone in Berlin. We haven't actually met in Berlin yet, but I'm sure uh, we can find time in the future. Um, but yeah, his schedule is all over the place, so who knows? Yeah, um, I remember that post that he did on Facebook. So you'd say, like, after that tough tournament, you could you could really see it in his mood. Um, I think that's when my vision for the story, not just for him to be a figurehead for the country, but really how psychologically that pressure is really, really uh, weighing down on him. I think that's when I first began to think that that could be the kind of lead uh, way to, to kind of speak about his character. Um, and then subsequently having spoken to him after that, after that um, when he'd kind of spoken to his fans and I think had time to consider things, um, really once I honed in on that angle, it really became clear that that was something that really is unique to him um, among many of the top stars. Even though, you know, players like Carlson and, and Vichyana and really don't have many domestic competitors and they're really representing their nation, um, I don't think that anyone has quite the same level of, you could almost call it a sort of national fervor or desperation for him to win in the way that the Armenians, I mean, every every person I spoke to from sports journalists to regular guys down the restaurant or a bar, they're, they're really, really pinning a lot of hopes on him. Uh, and he knows it. And I think that it, you know, it could provide a lot of strength for him. But sometimes I think when he's down because he's such an emotional, mercurial player, I think it really bogs him down as well. Wow, that's, uh, that's interesting insight. And I, he's... He comes across as a very likable player. I'm friends with, uh, you know, some some grandmasters who are able to able to appreciate um, the the quality of his games and you know know him a little bit. And I think that he's got a disproportionate number of fans, even amongst the sort of other top 100 players. There's there's just something about him that that uh, other players uh, are drawn to. He's just a real character. He's not. He's not really playing a role. He's not trying to be something he's not, and he's not trying to um, be happy, sad, angry, or whatever, just for the sake of trying to build a brand, so to speak. He really is quite an eccentric guy, um, and I think that really shines through. Like he doesn't, he's not. Um, I, I don't know how to describe it. He's not very. He's not an excessive guy. He doesn't really 
he's not really um, over effusive or or um, overly emotional in any kind of way when you speak to him. He's very affable and friendly and and really kind kind of guy. But I think he's very genuine. I think that's something that shines through um, in interviews with him, and I think that's why people are so into him as a as a star. Yeah, there's there's a dichotomy there because you know you describe the emotion of his play and the sort of fire that burns within in him, but he's he's known as more the one excuse me more of the well-adjusted players amongst the, amongst the players in the top ten or fifteen. I mean, in order to make it to that level, you have to sacrifice so much and focus so much on one thing that uh, a lot of the a, a lot of the players are are. Um, not necessarily fully present in like daily encounters, but that's not the map mm. on him. Well, I mean, it, it, no other player has the kind of local celebrity that he has. I'm sure. Um, when you go to Armenia, if he steps out in the street, people would, you know, be, be on him, uh, but in a really good way, like a really tight knit kind of friendly way. Um, and I don't think many other players have that rapport with the, with the nation. Um, and I think he sometimes he likes to have his own time and he doesn't spend a lot of time kind of out and about in Yerevan when he is there. But when he does head out, I think he's very he has a very good relationship with the country and, and the fans. Um, and I think that makes him a really genuine guy. Uh, and I think that's the main thing that people are drawn to him for. Yeah, I agree. Well, for listeners who haven't seen the story, I mean, the way it works in the chess community, Sean, when when uh when an article like this shows up in the New Yorker, like I know there was a big profile in Mag- on Magnus Carlsen, I want to say about five years ago, and you know it just gets shared everywhere on Facebook and on Twitter, and people just stop what they're doing and reading and read it. So, just want to thank you on on behalf of the chess community. We love it when uh, you know you give a well balanced portrait of of um, someone like Aroni and one of our best representatives. Um, so, any more chess writing in the pipeline? You think? Well, I mean, one day I'd love to uh, head out and, and really report on the feeder catastrophe or whatever yeah. you want to call it. Um, that would be really cool in a kind of um, in-depth reporting kind of way. But yeah, there's a few a ideas. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, that could be a few books probably. Um, but yeah, there's all sorts of things going on. I'm interested in the kind of um, the shift towards people playing in communities online and how that's changing the face of the game in many ways. Um and there are other players that I'd love to kind of speak to um, and, and maybe profile in the future. But we'll see. Yeah, this, is a, this was a great story and I'm, I'd, I'd love to do more on chess. And did this inspire you to dig into like your own chess at all? You, you said you're not, you're not a very good player. Do you aspire to get better at all? Well, I mean, I got a chess.com subscription and I gave that a go and I was learning some things. And I read a little, I read some uh, articles and tried to play, but... I'm still just about as used as I was a couple of years ago, so I don't know if I'm going to really uh, be playing much more in the future. But it's it's fascinating, and like I said, it, it's it's re- it's a real learning process. So yeah, I, I'll, I'll dip into it from time to time, but I'm I'm always going to be completely rubbish. <laughs> um, <laughs> so did you play tournaments at all when you were a kid, or just just learn the rules basically? pretty much just learning the rules and we had some kind of local champions that would turn up at the school and play uh play some of the kids and um had some kind of inter-school tournaments uh but really young at that point so no nothing beyond the odd you know 
few dozen games really um and then learning at home uh with my grandfather occasionally but no no it was never it was never like a major a major sport I, had, I was playing all sorts of other sports at the time as well so chess got pushed a bit pushed a bit back nice and how did the the potential fide storyline that we'll be eagerly waiting for how did that come on your radar uh i know um everyone in the chess world knows about the problems they've had but outside of the chess world i feel like it doesn't thankfully get that much attention yeah i mean i actually had done my previous story for the new yorker on uh, corruption in russian soccer yeah i, uh, I checked that article i mean i read it. It, it i quite enjoyed it i dug in a little bit um you could sorry go on you can tell the tell the listeners yeah I, I think, yeah, it was a story of a really famous old football club in uh, Moscow that basically has fallen on really hard times. Uh, and one of the presidents or directors of the club at the moment is a very close friend of Vladimir Putin, who's actually been in the news quite a bit recently with all the stuff that's going on with uh, with you guys and the Russians. Right. <laughs> um, uh, but I just found that ref- sort of reporting that story really fascinating. And I was looking into any other sort of weird sporting stories from Russia, essentially, and, and stumbled upon the feeder, feeder thing. Google, um, Googled corrupt, uh, corrupt organizations and <laughs> up came feeder. Pretty much, yeah. <laughs> yeah, funny. yeah. Um, yeah. And then um, uh, I'm, I'm going to pronounce his name wrong, but the, the, your feeder um, president, uh, he is one hell of a character. Um, and if I could... Uh, do a story on him one day and the sort of what's going on in Kalmykia and with the, with the Federation, then uh, that would be a very, very fun, interesting investigation to do. Yeah. Uh, and I'm sure there's millions of reams of stuff that's, that's yet to be written about that whole thing. So yeah, maybe one day I can dig into that as well. Excellent. Yeah. Uh, I feel like he may have gotten the New Yorker treatment once, but I think it was many years th- ago and I could be wrong about yeah. where it was. Like where it was I published. think that, I think it, yeah, I can't remember. I remember me reading one kind of meaty feature about it a while back, but um, yeah, it's, it would be interesting to see what he's up to at the moment. Probably complaining about ghosts or whatever else he believes in. Yeah. So on that soccer article, I lived in St. Petersburg in uh, 1998, and I'm pretty sure Spartak was terrible now at that point. Um, but they've become a powerhouse since then. Yeah, they seem to be the best club in uh, Russia at the moment. Uh, it's 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 really weird in Russian football because so much is in flux and depends on kind of which uh, benefactor is giving which club the most money. Uh, and at the moment, it seems to be Zenit St. Petersburg uh, and Spartak are sort of racing ahead while Dynamo uh, and other clubs, including the ones from Dagestan and elsewhere in the North Caucasus, uh, they've their benefactors have run out of money and they've fallen on hard times. So. Russian football is a bit of a lottery these days, and it really reflects on the country and its economy, which is uh, another reason why looking into sport is so interesting, because a lot of the time it focuses on the country's economy, and, and you can learn so much from that kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, soccer, uh, I never know which to call it on this podcast. Um, <laughs> I feel like Americans should just give up the ghost and call it football, but <laughs> but uh, unfortunately, we have our own football, so it's... A, it's um, it's a tough, tough call. But anyway, uh, soccer, a.k.a. football, um, with the uh, World Cup coming up in Russia, are you, um, are you a fan as well? I'm a huge fan. Yeah, yeah. I'm 
I go to games whenever I can and uh, I support a very poor club at the moment back in London as well. So yeah, I'll be, I'll be watching every game pretty much. Um, and I've got so, several friends that are in the football hierarchy in Russia. So I'm very keen to see how they stage that event. Um, there's been a lot of talk of hooliganism and, and problems with violence. So, uh, which I think are mostly inflated by Western media that doesn't really understand Russia that well. Um, but yeah, it's going to be really interesting to see how that pans out. I'm hoping to go there as well, so that'll be fun if it can happen. Yeah, I'm sure there'll be a million behind-the-scenes story angles you could dig into. Um, with your yeah, opinion. yeah. I, I, I kind of conjure up a new one every day. Probably most of them are rubbish, but um, <laughs> yeah, there's, there's no sort of stuff to write about that. Yeah, and who's your pick to win uh, next year? Ooh, I mean, it's hard to look past Germany, really. They just look so solid at the moment. Um, Brazil and, and Argentina look pretty shaky, so I, I'd probably rule them out. Um, I'd love to say England will do well, but we're not going to do well. So <laughs> I think I, to look past Germany, no, not really. I think it's going to probably be them in the final with someone else. But and as a Berlin yeah. resident, do you do you root for them? Yeah, sure, sure. And when they beat um, Brazil seven-one in the last tournament, that was pretty incredible. So that was uh, there was a lot of street parties and stuff going on in the streets of Berlin. Actually, I wasn't here for the final, unfortunately. I was back in the States with my uh, in-laws, but um, yeah, it was it was really, really great fun. And uh, I'm sure they're going to do well this year. I mean, the, the Germans have an incredible um, mentality for sport, so they're really not going to screw up that many times. So uh, I'd expect them to see that they're there or thereabouts. Nice. Yeah, um, I'm a casual soccer fan, but the World Cup always gets my <laughs> attention, so I excited for that um, yeah and you guys i mean i think you guys could do pretty well as well you've got a good team at the moment so we'll see what happens there nice we could use some good news <laughs> <laughs> um so what's your next story sean do you have it lined up um yeah i'm actually heading out to um i'm doing a, a more political story i'm heading out to the philippines in september um and i'm gonna be writing about the country's drug war <laughs> so a bit of a departure from chess but um yeah, I, I went there last year and I did a story for the New Republic on it uh, and how technology is playing a role in the violence there. So I'm going to head back uh, and kind of do a story on how things have panned out a year after I was last there. Uh, so that's going to be quite a different sort of story, but um, very uh, rich and interesting thing to research as well, kind of history of the country. Nice. So it seems like you've kind of settled into basically a few beats, right? You've got You've got the Filipino beat. And soccer beat, and <laughs> yeah, I mean, I any story is a good story if it's good. I mean, I don't really necessarily follow a single thread at a time. I just, uh, I, I love kind of long form writing and uh, really digging into a topic. So, yeah, whichever thing takes my fancy, I, I dive into it and seem to spend months and months looking at it. Nice. Well, if you need some levity, or at least maybe not levity, but at least something a little less consequential, you could dig into to Wesley So's history in the Philippines. Um, they've got their own, you know, powerhouse chess culture, and he's got an interesting backstory there. Yeah, I was thinking about um, getting in touch with a few people actually. So maybe that's something I could do a kind of a story about while I'm there. Yeah. Nice. Well, Sean, I'm, I'm, I only have one or two more questions. I usually ask my guests for chess book recommendations, but I think in, in this case, you being the first uh, 
full-time writer we've had on, I'd rather open it up to just anything generally. Any general book recommendations for our listeners? Anything that grabbed you? Um, yeah, well, there's a book actually that um, I read quite recently that's by a, book, a guy called um, uh, David Grant. He's uh, written from kinds of magazines. I think he might be a New, New Yorker staffer, actually. Um, and he wrote a book recently called uh, Killers of the Flower Moon. And it's about um, a kind of community of Native Americans in Oklahoma uh, in the 1920s that were killed off for their oil. Uh, and my wife is from Oklahoma, so I have quite—I <laughs> like reading about the state, and it's a really interesting uh, historical non-fiction book. So yeah, that's what I recommend. Excellent, thank you. And do you have any um, any general advice? I mean, some there's there's a bit of a connection between chess players and writers. I mean, both of them are often pursued like alone in a room. Um, so <laughs> I, I think that uh, I think that chess players can get. Uh, no, I mean, not not quite as obsessive, but I have noticed that a lot of people who like chess like writing. So do you have any general advice about writing or storytelling uh, for our audience? Um, yeah, I mean, one would be stay off social media as much as you can. <laughs> I saw you had a tweet <laughs> looking, looking for some uh, support with that. Yeah, yeah. I got off Facebook recently. It's about the best thing I've done in a long time. Um yeah, I, I, that is something that I would recommend. But I, I think, I, I don't know if it's just um, because I'm kind of researching all sorts of different topics. No, it's not necessarily something that I'm coming from, from a personal background kind of angle. But I just just really speak to as many different people as you possibly can. It seems like such an obvious thing to say, but um, you really don't get a, a true insight of any topic. You know, you can read a million books, but until you speak to people about it that are involved, you don't really know everything about it. So that would be, yeah, I guess that would be my main bit of advice. Excellent advice. Okay. Well, Sean, thanks a lot for coming on the podcast. Uh, hopefully, um, hopefully you'll uh, keep the chess writing coming. I know that these things take a while to, to come to fruition, but, but uh, we'll be looking yeah. forward to your writing in the future. Thank you. It's a pleasure. Pleasure speaking to you, Ben. And if anyone wants to reach out to you, uh, what's what's the best way? Oh, well, you know, as much as I said, I'm not on social media. I do have a Twitter handle. So, um, yeah, it's uh, I'm at S. Williams Journal on Twitter. So people can reach out to me there. I'm pretty responsive. Excellent. So I'll, I'll link to your Twitter account and to the article, although I suspect most of our listeners will have read it by the time this comes out. Um, okay, well, thanks a lot, Sean. We, we really appreciate you putting in some good words for chess and uh, keep up the good work. Thanks very much. Cheers. Thanks for listening to Perpetual Chess. To hear more episodes, give feedback, or suggest guests, go to perpetualchesspod.com. If you like the show, please help me out by telling your friends and giving me a high rating on iTunes. I'll be back next week with another episode of the Perpetual Chess Podcast. Podcast Network. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to. Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.